But in reality, what we have seen in the list is a list of people that were potentially targeted or targeted because they were journalists, because they were dissidents, because they were lawyers, head of states, political opponents, people who were deciding to escape their country because they wanted to survive. If you use a cell phone, you will want to hear this conversation. Welcome to Real Fiction. Today, the authors of the newly released book, Pegasus, are here. It details the Pegasus Project investigation of a new class of surveillance software licensed to governments by the Israeli company NSO. It has been labeled weapons-grade technology. Why? Because once embedded in a cell phone, it is undetectable. As we will learn, the software is targeting journalists and private citizens with far-reaching implications for democracy. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. If you're listening on public radio or on a podcast platform, I'm glad you're here. On Real Fiction, I speak with journalists, authors, scholars about issues that impact our lives. I look for stories and angles that are underreported or excluded from mainstream media outlets. Real Fiction is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. All episodes are available on the website, realfictionradio.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we'll hear from renowned journalists, Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud, who joined me from Paris. Their work with the Pegasus Project started as a global investigation, is now a book, and the subject of a two-part frontline documentary on PBS. I'll be back in a moment. I'm joined today by journalists Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud. They are authors of the newly released book, Pegasus, How a Spy in Your Pocket Threatens the End of Privacy, Dignity, and Democracy. The book recounts the full story of a global investigation surrounding the weapons-grade surveillance technology, Pegasus, that can infect a cell phone, leaving the user unaware. If this sounds familiar, this investigation was referred to as the Pegasus Project when it was published in the Washington Post and The Guardian in the summer of 2021. It exposed the shocking cybersecurity threat that has targeted journalists and private citizens. What this book now brings into focus is the meticulous process of designing and maintaining the investigation, which included a global consortium of journalists and cybersecurity experts. It was, to put it gently, an enormously dangerous investigation. Laurent Richard is the founder of Forbidden Stories, a Paris-based journalism organization, which is devoted to continuing the work of assassinated and jailed journalists. He is a documentary filmmaker and was named European Journalist of the Year in 2018. And Sandrine Rigaud is a French investigative journalist and editor-in-chief of Forbidden Stories, She has reported on stories across the globe and directed feature-length 
documentaries. Joining me from France are Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having us. If I've ever read a book that should be taught in journalism schools, it's probably this one. And I invited you here to discuss the book as well as the state of journalism across the globe. More journalists than ever are targeted and threatened, which makes the accomplishment and process of this Pegasus project and the book that you've written all the more astonishing. Let's start with an overview of this surveillance technology. What is Pegasus software? Who made it? What does it collect? And what was the marketed purpose? Um, Pegasus is, is a spyware that is sold by a company called NSO Group. Uh, that's a spyware used by dozens of countries all around the world. And this is like a person over your shoulder. It's, it's basically something that is taking entirely the control of your device. So it's like someone who will catch and, and get all your secrets and transfer all, all of that to your worst enemies, the people who are surveilling you, who might be able someday at some point to use those informations against you. So this is a, a technology that is classified as a weapon. So we're talking here about a military weapon used against civilians. It, you use the term weapons-grade technology. I, I've had some surveillance um, discussions on this program before, but uh, we, we've never used that term before. So this is this is a category of surveillance technology that is considered uh, far more obtrusive and more difficult to track. Yes, and, and uh, NSO Group needs a specific license uh, um, from the Israeli Defense Ministry to, to sell this spyware. And it's important to keep in mind that uh, the, the spyware can uh, only be sold to governments uh, and government agencies, and it, it has to obey the, the same rules and legislations. When your organization, uh, Forbidden Stories, was uh, first approached, you received a list of 50,000 cell phone numbers. Why did this list come to your organization, and who were the other organizations that had uh, knowledge of a list that was being circulated? Uh, we got access to the list as uh, Amnesty uh, get access to the list as well. So the two organizations, Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International, were granted access to that list of 50,000 phone numbers all around the countries, all around the world, of phone numbers that we suspect have been potentially targeted. We were not able to know from the list if a phone number were really targeted or no, uh, or not. We were just able to say that from what we see in the list, this phone number have been entered by an NSO customer uh, for potential targeting. And, and so that list is, is huge because that's the very first time in the history of cyber surveillance since the Snowden revelations more than 10 years ago. With that kind of list, you are able to know who is spying on who all over the world. With that kind of list, you can discover many war secrets, many operations of surveillance from a country to another country, from a dictator against a dissident, from a government against a journalist. And this is what, at the end, we were able to discover. We were, in that list, you were 
not having, you were not only having criminal and terrorists because officially that's the narrative of the company and so group who is selling the spyware that we only sell that to terrorists and to, to state actors to catch the bad guys, to get arrested the terrorists and the criminals. But in reality, what we have seen in the list is a list of people that were potentially targeted or targeted because they were journalists, because they were dissidents, because they were lawyers, head of states, political opponents, people who were deciding to escape their country because they wanted to survive. We were able to put names on the victims. And now with the Pegasus project and with that list and with the forensic analysis that we have done, you can see the real faces of the victim. And being a victim of a Pegasus spy war is really something that is traumatizing, that will change your life because you are entirely trapped. The important point here, which you stated so beautifully, is that it was this software was marketed for tracking terrorists and people dangerous to a state, but it went so far beyond the intended purpose. When it came to understanding the scope, it required um, not only journalistic instinct, but you needed to bring in cyber security experts. And if I'm not mistaken, when when you said that the Amnesty International Organization received the list, they have a special division, I believe, the, a security lab that exists within that organization. And it was that connection between their cybersecurity team and uh, your organization, Forbidden Stories, that came together to discuss how to move forward with the list? Yeah, we needed the clearly the help of uh, experts like uh, Amnesty International Security Lab to work with us because, I mean, for different reasons. First, because they helped us set up a very secure communication protocol. We, we were 80 journalists working on that very difficult and dangerous investigation, and we needed to communicate in a safe way while discussing cyber surveillance and being potentially ourselves targeted. So we couldn't use our cell phones, we couldn't use our computers, we had to, to set up a completely different universe and, and place where we, can, where we could discuss safely about the, the investigation. They helped us on that. They also helped us in trying to in identifying the phone numbers we had because we basically had just a list of phone numbers. We didn't know who was behind the, the phone numbers. And of course, we, we used our contact books and our sources and our, uh, the phone numbers we could gather. But we also used open source um, tools to try to find out who was behind the numbers. And this is how we were able to identify uh, dozens of journalists, of human rights activists, of um, uh, political people uh, all over the world. And the third reason why um, we needed them is because they are the one who um, really were at the origin of that uh, very specific method of analyzing phones to find uh, Pegasus traces in them. Uh, what we had was only a list of, of numbers who we believed were, were uh, potentially targeted by, by Pegasus. But in order to prove that and to write that, uh, we had to make sure those numbers were actually um, hacked. And the, this is how we collaborated with the, the security lab of Amnesty International in trying to, in helping them getting access to the content of the phones and finding Pegasus in them. This is the kind of journalism impact that we need more of. What was the reaction of 
cell phone companies. I know Apple had made a statement and they, I believe they altered their iOS updates because as you're talking about this, everyone's thinking, oh, is my cell phone up to date? Um, so some companies, some tech companies uh, were already aware of, I mean, all the companies aware, but some had made some public moves like uh, WhatsApp, for example, because WhatsApp had monitored Pegasus attacks a few months before we published and was able to notify 1,400 victims, actually, of, of Pegasus attacks. So, I mean, th- there was a knowledge in, in, the, in the tech world that this was a threat. But of course, um, tech company, phone companies don't like to communicate about that. Security can be costly. And, uh, and, and Apple wasn't very talkative about that. But clearly, Apple decided to sue NSO after we published the Pegasus project with the proposal of a lockdown mode of your phone that, that is much more protective. So th- there was some, some reactions because clearly it, it became obvious that was a, a huge concern and a reality. As you were going through the, the list, as it's called in the book, the list of 50,000 leads, of phone number leads, it had to have been extremely overwhelming because as you said, just because you have a list, you still have to get to the stage where the evidence is provable before you can publish a story. You brought in a number of journalists. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of expertise that came in to support the Pegasus Project. And I'm, I'd love to ask you about um, one in particular, because in the Washington DC area and the United States, uh, Dana Priest is very well known. She has won a couple of Pulitzer Prizes for her investigative work. And you met with her in Washington to discuss this project. And I found it kind of, um, well, very interesting. When you met her, you asked her to turn off her devices and put them in the other room, which was the established protocol for this project. Can you tell us about meeting Dana and um, what what it took to prove to her that this was a a real and viable project yeah that's that's that was not that easy because first it's how to pitch a project that is about cyber surveillance be, without being surveilled ourselves <laughs> <laughs> right that's the first thing second it's how to travel when when there is a big COVID crisis and when transportation is not easy. So we had to go to the to the US to meet Dana in person despite the COVID. So it was not that an easy move. And then thirdly, that since Dana Priest is a very well-known award-winning reporter, when you're approaching Dana Priest as a journalist, you have to convince her that is... Um, that is real, really very important that we have to meet. But in the meantime, it was not that difficult to convince her because we were just at that point ending a, a project on, the, on the, the cartel project. We were continuing the work of a, a Mexican journalist called Regina Martinez. We were just publishing the cartel project. And precisely at that time, we started discussing with Dana, telling her that we just finished this one, but we have a new one to, to sell you. <laughs> And and but but for this one we cannot talk over a, con- a regular conference call, uh, Zoom or something like that. So we have we have to come to your house, and when we will arrive to your house, we will ask you to turn off your device, make sure the device is far away, 
and everything that we're going to tell will be something very secret between you and us. But Dana is a very experimented investigative journalist. So she, she knows how to take, how to be very cautious when it's about cyber surveillance. So that was not an issue at all for her. And then, and especially as soon as she understood and she starts seeing what the list and what the list was about, and then she starts getting about what kind of revelations, stories we can break with all of that. Um, the difficulty here was, okay, but f- from where we start, 15,000 phone numbers from where we start, which one <laughs> we choose? What is the story behind that number? Yeah. And let me just remind listeners that my guests today are journalists Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud. We're discussing their newly released book, Pegasus, How a Spy in Your Pocket Threatens the End of Privacy, Dignity, and Democracy. You know, when I was reading the book and reflecting on what emerged from this list, I guess it wasn't as surprised that some of the countries are authoritarian in their governance structure. Uh, I would like to ask you about a, a case that's in the news now. Greece, for example, is a country that is facing accusations of spying on journalists. And this is, here we are in the cradle of democracy. Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis has had to speak to ties to um, attempted quiet critics and journalists. The software that has been uh, identified in Greece is uh, something called Predator. Are you familiar with the story and and how it fits into um, these what you uncovered? The question as, as well that is very interesting that you I think you are asking through the example of Greece. At the end, the question is not about should we have a ban on the spyware because I think that's impossible to control that. And in the meantime, we do have to admit that if a terrorist can be caught by and arrested thanks to the help of a spyware. That's a good news, of course. Uh, the thing, the question is more about how to control all of that, how to prevent those thousands of misuse that we, we have been able to, to reveal, how to know that my country, your country is using a spyware and, and how is controlling that? Who is the power? Who is in charge? Do we have members of Congress who are controlling that? Do they do have access to that kind of a, um, document? Most of the time they do, they are classified. So there is a, a problem of accountability, a problem of transparency. That's really the wide west. It's like the, the sale of weapons 40 or 50 years ago when there were no regulations at all. And this is where we are. There is no regulation to protect the citizens you, if you are citizens, you don't know that you are a victim. And even if you know that you are the victim, even if you discover that one day you have been targeted by that spyware, what will you do with that? That is really the heart of it. What is the response of governments around the world? And how do we balance transparency with confidentiality? You note in the book, um, there's a quote from um, the United States Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo on this point. And the, um, the statement is that is this, the U.S. is committed to aggressively using export controls to hold companies accountable that develop traffic or use technologies to conduct malicious activities that threaten the cybersecurity of members of civil society, dissidents, government officials, and organizations here and abroad. 
is that statement consistent with what you are seeing, for example, in Europe? Um, yeah, I mean, just a remark concerning the European countries um, and Greece to complete what was said. Um, I think it's it's interesting to see that Predator was used against some journalists in Greece, but that even in the heart of Europe, uh, we see that such tools can be used um, by democracies to target uh, political opponents or journalists. And this is really problematic because even if you limit the experts of, of and the licenses of countries that are considered to be democratic, uh, this doesn't um, totally solve the problem. I, I think that, yeah, our role in, in that story was really a role of, of journalists investigating and for the first time probably exposing the scale of, um, of the misuse of, of those tools, even in democratic countries. When I think about this enormous investigation that you held together, you designed and held together um, and successfully published, it goes back to something that you mentioned in the very beginning of the book. I'd like to get your, your feelings on the state of journalism. You write, um, there's a quote from a man who is described as the godfather of investigative journalism in Mexico. And his quote was, the world has hardened and I think journalism will have to harden too. And then goes on to say, heavy tasks await us. I really hovered on that statement. Where, where do you see investigations like this heading in a world where journalists are increasingly threatened? You've been at the heart of some really difficult investigations. How, how do you think about doing your job um, now, in a few years, and how are you counseling uh, other journalists who might be a little fearful in taking on investigations like this? Well, I, I think that, and that's something that we we should have maybe developed more. But uh, this collaboration was um, was involving eighty journalists from um, a sixteen news organization plus Forbidden Stories newsroom. So it's um, it's a huge collaborative work. You have eighty reporters from many countries. Um, who were able to make that Pegasus project. And without them, there is, no, uh, there is no project at all. There is no revelation. So we, we, the list was just the beginning of the project, uh, but we needed to create a lot of team for that, to coordinate that and to, and to dispatch the work. And so that's talking about the states, the, where we are with the journalism now, where we are the, with the question of, trust between citizens and journalists, which is really a key issue. I really think that, first of all, when you have at that level of attack against democracies, because we can really talk about an, an attack against democracies with that kind of spy, spy were massively misused by governments against people who um, have in common to challenge their governments, challenging the powers because they are activists, because they are dissidents, because they they are fighting for democracies. So when you have some kind of spyware technology used by NSO customers to target those people, to kill their stories, to make sure that they won't, uh, they they will be silenced one day thanks to that kind of espionage. Uh, this is why we are very concerned about the states of democracy with that kind of, with that lack of regulations 
on the spyware industry. So how to do with when we are journalists? The way we are doing that, and this is why I created Forbidden Stories six years ago, is believing in collaborative journalism. We are facing global crime. We need global answers. And cyber surveillance is a global crime because you have a private company selling to state actors in many countries at the same time. So that's the same approach that we do have when we are countering the work of journalists who were killed as they were investigating environmental crime. So something that is about minerals and trafficking of minerals in India is something that is not only an Indian story. That's French, that's an American story because that's about exports and uh, our globalization. So I think that the world is getting harder and the answers from journalists needs to be more collaborative, more global. Collaboration is bringing protection. Since we are here to talk about threats against people and mostly journalists, uh, it doesn't make sense to kill a reporter if, if we are 80 to investigate, 80 to continue the work if any of, of the, if any one of the group is, is falling down. So that's the beauty of the collaboration. You have more protection, more resources, more impact. And you, you start the conversation by maybe there should be, be a book that is, that should be written in the journalism school. I agree. I think that we should really teach more and more collaborative journalism at school. This is where we can make a difference, I think, when we are journalists. And, and, and journalists can be that kind of job where you can make that difference. And I know it sounds strange now when we talk about journalists like that, uh, because for most of the people, the journalists are close to the elite, close to the poor, um, uh, are working for billionaires, Oh, oh, don't care about the general interests. But uh, if you have a look into how many numbers of journalists have been killed over the past years, then you start realizing how important journalists are because they have been killed for the stories that they were about to publish. I think that is, if there's a takeaway from this conversation today, it is the concept of collaborative journalism and what you are achieving at Forbidden Stories is a mindset shift in the field of journalism. It's a way to bring big stories to public attention in a way that can add a a protective layer for journalists and credibility to the story. I I firmly believe that this will be taught in journalism schools. I I, I think that the, the concept of collaborative journalism is something that you are bringing to the forefront. My guests again are Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud. We've been discussing their book, Pegasus, How a Spy in Your Pocket Threatens the End of Privacy, Dignity, and Democracy. Thank you to you both. Thank you, Lorraine. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Real Fiction, a production of Real Fiction Media Group. I want to mention two follow-on notes. Since this recording was made, Frontline announced a two-part, four-hour documentary covering the Pegasus Project on PBS. Meanwhile, in Greece, the government surveillance scandal continues to unfold. This comes just months after the Greek Prime Minister addressed a joint session of Congress in Washington, heralding democratic values. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. All Real Fiction episodes and guest profiles are available on realfictionradio.com. And you can listen to all the episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.